Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers, and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. And welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, show number 39. That is almost unimaginable. Welcome to the show. And uh, a little later, we will be speaking to Angela McMahon, a wonderful publicist for crime books uh, for many years, including uh, for Ian Rankin. So we're looking forward to speaking to her. She's working on with us on the Genesis Inquiry. She is. By Ollie Jarvis, which comes out. Tuesday. Tomorrow. Yeah, thank you for that. Tomorrow uh, here at Hobeck Books. So it's a very, very big day for us. That's the 12th of October. Well. What do we do? We should tell them what we do. We, and who we are. I'm Adrian Hobart. And I'm Microsoft Susan UK. Although I'm not. I was going to be Microsoft Susan UK, but I'm actually Rebecca Collins. Yeah. And your voice is still. Well, it's, it's, it's a, an insight into just how poorly you've been this week. You really have been very poorly. Oh, it's been, it's been, I've never had anything quite like it. And there were two or three days where I did have to use Microsoft Susan UK to communicate with the children. I had a very in-depth conversation with one of them, speaking through a synthesizer because I could not speak. So this is good. This is getting on, they're getting better. Well, I've certainly improved from last week, but there have been moments. I mean, I'm still having uh, days where, you know, any given hour I can suddenly feel very weak and, and tired. But uh, at least I was able to venture out for sort of half a day yesterday. So the things are on the move, but I'm still very deep baritone compared to what I normally am. Yes. It's, and... a, it's a lot deeper than normal. I mean, that's no bad thing sometimes, but it does mean that it's very, it, it, you know, when I'm in the middle of a recording project, which I am at the moment, I can't do a consistent voice. No, because the flow is ruined, isn't it, by anything that affects your voice. Absolutely. Anyway, enough of our moans. Let's tell you about who we are. So uh, you, we've mentioned who we are in terms of the people, but uh, we run Hobbit what Books. What do we do? Yeah, yeah, we run Hobbit Books, independent publishers in the UK of the following genres. Thrillers. Mysteries. Crime. And suspense. That was me being Zen from Blake 7, by the way. The computer, yeah. Because you've been watching it. <laughs> yeah, I've been watching rather a lot of it. Yeah, my eclectic, uh, I've moved from submarines this week. So watching a lot of Blake Seven. Um, what else have I been watching? Oh, this this Stephen Hawking documentary you've been obsessed yeah. with. No, no, it's not obsessed. Look, no, that's not a bad word. Oh, everyone uses it. Oh, you're obsessed. I mean, that's what my well, kids use. I don't use it in a, in a negative way. Okay, so there's a Stephen Hawking documentary available on Sky, which looks at the family um, of, of Stephen and... You know, I very briefly had some contact with them in the middle of the 80s when things were really getting very, very sticky for them, uh, just when he got his first voice computer. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's nostalgic for me. Um, it's a period I remember very well. Um, but the, the sort of the personal cost of being the son, daughter, spouse of the most famous scientist on the planet. Um, and really just how difficult a man he was to live with. 
So it's it's a really interesting documentary, but for me, it has you know personal echoes. So uh, that's that's an interesting. Um, that was a good watch. We've also know. been watching now. It's something like Rigby Road. Ridley like? Road. Ridley Road, which we, you described. Uh, I thought you hit the nail on the head with this description. Call the midwife of Nazis. Yes. Um, yeah, cool. <laughs> it is exactly that. So it, it's, the, it's the period of Call the Midwife, and they've obviously indulged in the hairstyles, the dress sense, the music. Uh, but the fact is it's about the, the rise of a fascist movement in, in Britain. And Rory Kinnear is the sort of lead fascist, and he's a fantastic actor, son of Roy. You can see some resemblance. but You can, yes. yeah. That is, he's getting older, you can see yeah. it. Yeah, and he's also a, a, a key figure in the, the new Bond film as well, So, uh, which I have seen. Uh, but I won't say anything because it's just spoiler central if you do. So, um, yeah, it's worth seeing. It's a long film. <coughs> yeah, you'd struggle. <coughs> Two hours, 45 minutes without coughing. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I was supposed to go to London yesterday to sit in a theatre and watch a musical. No chance. Absolutely no chance. <laughs> I would have cleared the theatre in 10 minutes because everybody would think, oh, she's got COVID and she's sat here watching this. Yeah. Um, and we still haven't had your... Test result. No, I did two lateral flow tests and they came back as negative. And I did a PCR test on, I don't know, Wednesday. And I still haven't had a result, which is very odd. Yeah, that's taken a long time. Anyway. Maybe they assume, I don't know. Let's move on from sickness news to to, to publishing news. And and there's some really interesting stories around this week. I think the most, well, there's two related to Amazon, which are really significant. Um, So the first one is that uh, when we went on the KDP dashboard, which is Kindle Direct Publishing, which is where you manage your accounts for all of the books that we've got at Hoback, for instance, because we we publish exclusively on Kindle Unlimited uh, with Kindle, they're now offering, as a beta program, uh, hardback publishing directly from Amazon. And that is a really significant change because previously we've used Ingram Spark very, very occasionally to do the odd hardback edition. Yeah, I think just two things we have, yeah. Right. So it's been a rare thing. But now we can get them, you know, when we publish a, a book, we can offer a hardback option through Amazon. And uh, what they're not doing is dust jackets. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because initially I assumed it meant dust jackets as well. But actually it's that sort of hybrid between paperback and hardback where the um, the covers printed onto the onto the, um, the the hardback material. Yeah, so I think that that is a, a really interesting change because it's an extra option for us to offer to to customers who prefer a hardback yeah. version. Um, I think it makes large print books um, much more viable for us. It's a little bit of extra effort to to reformat the books so that uh, we can offer them as large print, which I think is a benefit to a, a, an increasingly large number of people. And, um, you know, really no dramatic extra cost. We might need to, you know, when we're doing the cover design, change the dimensions. Yeah, there will, there, will, there will be that extra proof that you will need from the cover designer. But um, I imagine the internal text will be the same. So... Yeah, and and one of the other things, of course, we're trying to do is to obviously add audio to all of our publications as well. We're way, you know considerably behind on that, but that will be the option. But in future, it's possible to, to imagine that you could do a new release in uh, ebook, paperback, hardback, large print, and audio, 
Blimey. Coordinated and and offer that as a package uh, from the get-go. And that is certainly an aspiration of ours so that we can get our processes sorted out. I mean, the audio thing, you have to sort of commit to the text, I would say, three months before it's due to come out. Because if it takes a month to produce, minimum, um, then it's going to take a long time for something audible to process it through their system. So ideally, you really want to settle on the text four months so in our uh, the current way we work, that is not feasible because we have quite a quick turnaround at the moment of our yeah. books. So it is possible, but we would have to accept that the print schedule and the ebook schedule mm-hmm. would have to be extended. Absolutely. Well, look, we'll experiment with the, the, the hardback publishing and put one of our titles through the process and then order some copies and see what they look like. Uh, and if it's any and if it's any cop, okay, I'd prefer a dust jacket and you get that through Ingram Spark. But the fact is that the costs involved, um, you know, you don't make a lot of money on it. But interestingly, though, these um, the sort of printed hardbacks, you, and over the last two years, I'd say, you've seen more and more of these in Waterstones mm. and bookshops. Mm-hmm. It's not acceptable. They're, they're quite attractive. They're quite nice. I quite like them. We've got one in our downstairs toilet. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Dust jackets tend to tear... Yes, I've noticed. Poor old Sean Williamson. Because you've used his flap, poor Sean, as a bookmark, there's a little tear. No, 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 no. That, that came when it was oh, delivered. Did it? Okay. Yeah, when I ordered it from Amazon. So cool. at the moment I'm reading this wonderful book, <laughs> A Matter of Facts by Sean Williamson, better known as Barry from EastEnders. Who I've seen. spoken to. <laughs> yeah, you have. And you may have um, seen him on um, Extras as well. Uh, it's a brilliant book about his uh, year dedicated to becoming a uh, a leading quiz champion, uh, taking on the greats of uh, of, the, of quizzing around the world. Um, and it's also sort of part memoir about how he became an actor quite late in life, uh, got the role of Barry from EastEnders and, and the sort of things he gets up to. And it's it's wonderfully funny. It's very self-deprecating. It's, it speaks to me because I love quizzes and trivia um but on nothing like the level of the, the, these really top top people like they see on the chase um who compete you know amongst themselves or the eggheads yeah well they do every week don't they they do More they do no i know it's 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 a really good book anyway uh but yeah the cover came with a dust jacket which was already pre-damaged mm. uh, which was unfortunate and then another book i bought and started reading jeremy paxman's black gold one of the copies came through and you know tore within seconds um, I think it got slightly wet by left, being left on the doorstep. So, in you know, dust jackets aren't all that. Let's no. put it that way. So, I mean, that's, that's that's a good point because that means that these Amazon hardbacks are going to be quite hardy and hard-wearing. Yeah, you'd think and, so. Yeah, people do care about that sort of thing, so yeah, I think it's, it's good. So the other Amazon story you spotted. Yeah, so I didn't know, I mean, maybe it's my ignorance, that Amazon actually have physical bookshops in the U.S., and they are about to open their first one in the UK, which will sell books. Now, they've got this interesting criteria, though, for books that they're willing to sell in the bookshop. And they are books that are four stars and above, rated four stars and above, which is, you know, you can understand why. Um, and it's going to be opened in the Blue Water Centre, is that right? Yeah, Blue Water, Blue Water Shopping Centre. Near yeah. Dartford. Yeah. Um, so I'm quite excited. I'd like to see how it compares to other bookshops, you know, what sort of layout they go for. Well, I I would like to see them, you know, really emphasise the independent sector that have made Amazon's made possible to to exist. I mean, you know, there's lots of people who go out there and say, look, you know, they're the evil, whatever else. But if it weren't for Amazon, there would be no indie publishing scene. It's as simple as that. 
Um, so if they can curate <coughs> Hobeck books amongst their things, you know, all for it. But even self-published authors who are four stars and above rated to have lots and lots of self-published authors have been very successful and had very good ratings. If their criteria is it must be a hot new release and it must be four stars and above, they are they are eligible. So, yes, I agree with you. I would like to think that it's a sort of a democracy of selection in those terms that doesn't matter who published it, four star and above, you're in the shop. Absolutely. My final story uh, for this week is, well, I made my jaw drop, really. So there's a new publishing um, enterprise. It's uh, called Inkit, and it's going to be based in San Francisco eventually. Um, and they've basically been... Re- uh, raising money for what they're calling data-focused publishing. And they've managed to raise another, this is the second round of publishing, $59 million of investment. Can you imagine if somebody gave us $59 million to spend on Hobeck? Yeah, I mean, it's, well, I mean, they say that they're, they're using data to basically sift through the submissions they get to discover the stories that people really want. Um, now that sounds a, a little bit too um, futuristic for my taste, because ultimately you and I choose who we work with. Um, We're the from, supercomputers. Well, yeah, but uh, I mean, it's all about gut instinct, isn't it? I mean, you know, look, we are not a publisher who go purely on the metrics, no. Because a lot of the big publishers do. They're looking for uh, whatever's the zeitgeist. So at the moment, let's be perfectly frank about it. Uh, when you look at the signings bits of the bookseller, a lot of people from BAME backgrounds are being signed up at the moment because there's a recognition within the publishing industry that it's underrepresented. So there's a big, it's a big sweep at the moment, big drive to find people from ethnic minorities to publish. And yeah. um, the bookseller is publishing all of those stories every week, uh, you know, and so, yeah, that's good news in the sense that, you know, British publishing needed to be more diverse. But that is definitely the trend at the moment. Um, equally, when something is successful, then suddenly publish, um, go on a train, for instance, suddenly everyone's looking for that, for the successor books. Of, well, or when George R. R. Martin, you know, fantasy became a big thing for a bit. Well, the best example has to be Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. It became a genre for a while. Yeah. And I'd also argue the sort of style of cover that's on Richard Osman and Janice Hallett, which is that sort of mm-hmm. slightly drawn, it's beautiful, but I've seen so many sort of copies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now. You know, the, the new Robert Thorogood so, uh, novel is exactly that. That's yeah. humans making those decisions. No, isn't absolutely it? no. I mean, it's following the trends, but this is about, you know, they're using data and AI, I guess, to choose the people they want to work with and also the formats in which they're going to do it and so yeah we've seen some shifting i mean clearly ebooks was a new format a decade ago um which has you know gripped the the publishing industry to a large extent and made the indie revolution possible and now we're looking at there's a a, a new set of uh, options i was listening to this week um where a number of companies are coming forward with uh electronically enhanced versions of ebooks where you can put in short videos or um, interactive video content uh, sorry you know uh, data content or something like that with your books and that'll be the next thing yes. that, that, that moves into 
uh, or animations. So that, that which is for when you think about children's publishing. Oh, well, they've tried it, but I think that you know now. I mean, it's all very well, but it's it's a massive cost to try and do that stuff. Once the software is there for you to be able to knock it off at home, mm-hmm. much like um, you know the the way that we can now typeset our books without having to go to a professional typesetter, uh, that is where it will be possible. So if you could just go to, uh, for argument's sake, Adobe whatever, which then creates interactive content for your books, then that's the next thing but it still will take a long time for people to to for it to be natively the way and format that they want it um and also they're looking at they're using um, their algorithms or whatever they're doing here with inkit uh to decide what becomes an audiobook so there's there's an awful lot of change in terms of technology but ultimately human taste is slow to change i think um you know, it takes a lot of persuading people. There are always going to be people who, who want to do the new the latest thing, but that's a small minority. The general consumer still, most people prefer a paperback to an ebook. They do seem to, especially in the UK, don't they? I, I mean, in the so, US, it's slightly different. Yeah, but... it is. It is. So subscription models in the in the US and Kindles and whatever uh, have worked a lot better. And Kindle Vela is the obviously the next thing from from the Amazon stable, which is the episodic fiction. Um, model and pay through subscription and um, you know something that we should have a look at um, you know particularly around my own writing yeah we are going to you know we've got plans afoot so. yeah uh, absolutely so we've, we've we've got some interesting things there listen we should get to the interview and then we've got loads and loads of personal yeah and, and business updates to I do, do have one more bit of news but I'll do it after the interview I think. okay all right let's speak then to Angela Maman Angela is an extremely experienced publicist she actually started in marketing in books and uh, has a, a back an academic background in, in, in other things altogether but um, she has now become a freelance one of the leading freelance book marketers uh, sorry book publicists in the UK and uh, has worked with uh, the greats many many of the big names that you can think of and us and us and uh, Ian Rankin in particular but in this interview uh, well she, there's tons uh, oh, to take from it. It was it's fantastic, wasn't it? And she handled my question brilliantly. I yeah, shall the, find out the random question. So let's speak from her uh, home just outside Belfast to Angela McMahon. I, I wanted to ask you first of all. Uh, we'll get into your the you know the elements of your career and the people you've worked with, but I just wanted to take one aspect of it when you switched from one side of things to another, and that's from marketing to mm-hmm. publicity the emphasis how would you define the two because they seem very closely related I think I mean I think more these days actually there's a lot of overlap um, but I think probably the theory is that marketing is paid for coverage and um, publicity is generated through pitching but it's Technically, it's free. Um, they, you know, there's certain, you'll have a, a certain amount of budget for X, Y, and Z, but it's much more about achieving either um, print or broadcast coverage simply through the power of your pitch and, you know, the subject you, you want your author to talk about. Um, for marketing, um, it can be anything from, material being sent off to you know 
directly to your audience or to you know a go-between um say I, I originally started off in academic publishing and so we were producing a lot of um material sales and marketing materials but you know catalogs for universities um mm-hmm. so you would have textbooks as well as um, much more academic reference books so depending on who you market was um it could be for libraries um where you were trying to get the the librarians in charge of this the sales and the, or the, the purchasing um you know trying to persuade them to buy these you know a set of encyclopedias on popular music that cost you know hundreds and hundreds of pounds um or it could be the textbook that cost 20 pounds so you you just understand your audience who you're speaking mm-hmm. to and trying to connect with them now that tends to be about producing material and then sending it directly to them or an adver- buying an advertising space so where one publicist um will go in and pitch an idea for a feature then you have um, a marketing person who will buy a space to place an advert um i, I mean and everyone will have seen sort of paid for promotion uh, where you might have a feature idea that, that but it's a paid for um, space within your newspaper or your magazine uh, where a publicist will come in and pitch the idea and the you know the the features editor or whoever the commissioning editor will um, will be sort of taken by the idea and then commission it by your author so there's a kind of I think there's also a different connection for an audience or a reader and that's simply down to sort of how much they trust you know because I think this it's a slightly different engagement I think if you are paying for a space then people automatically you know assume that well they've paid for that there's less authenticity in this particular space and if it's a feature then there's a little bit more trust Uh, so yeah so very simply it's just you know space or promotion that's paid for um, and has a budget for um, versus something that is purely pitched for and um, has to be achieved through its own merits or the you know the the persuasions of the publicist so I always must admit I find marketing in some way it's actually (laughs) easier to do marketing because you kind of you know what your budget is and you can go in and buy it uh, with publicity and you can be very creative with marketing I mean there's it can be so much fun publicity you could get response on one percent of of what you do and that can be deeply deeply frustrating but when you do get it it just you know it's incredible and the impact can be so much more than the paid for stuff but you do need um sorry you do need both uh to make a, a project happen really no, I, mean, I know what you mean about the excitement. One of our authors was mentioned in the Isle of Wight, um, some sort of Isle of Wight online magazine, and I got really excited yesterday. Yeah, <laughs> and, I thought, oh, and, and, and I noticed also they tend to sort of um, copy and paste a lot of the text that you send them as well. So it was yeah. all my words. <laughs> yeah, I, and the weirdest <laughs> thing is when you kind of, you see, you know, your press release just cut and paste into a national newspaper and you go oh my god I'm in the national press but that's <laughs> that's kind of you know and that happens you know every so often you'll send out a press release about something you know and, but the, when it's something relatively minor then it's quite exciting when you see it when it's something that is actually a major news story and they've just cut and paste um 
And you go, God, you're so lazy. That's unbelievable. <laughs> but then you have to appreciate that actually, you know, journalists now are, you know, so under pressure and they mm. are, you know, there's a few of them doing many, many more sort of jobs, really. I mean, they're, they're wearing so many hats quite often. They're under mm. huge amounts of pressure and they don't have time to, you know, go and rewrite a story or look for any additional information. So the job of a publicist is to appreciate that you're talking to someone who is being bombarded by a hundred other publicists and their editor and having to write copy and doing X, Y, and Z. And so it's really important as a publicist that you're super efficient. You send them all of the information, all of the material that you have to hand um, and so they don't have to chase, they don't have to, you know, ask you for the book cover and you just make it as easy as possible for them. And that's about, you know, understanding their needs, but also what will help build that relationship and build your reputation with those journalists as well. That is, it's, it's. I mean, I was going to say dark arts, but that I mean, I'm sure there are <laughs> publicists who, who, who indulge in those. But at the same time, it is a you're building a relationship and that is it's never easy even with somebody you see all the time to maintain a a, you know a a harmonious relationship but just to cold call to you know when a new journalist comes into a role that must be really tough trying to figure out what angle they're coming from and 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 trying to anticipate that Mm, and and you know also, you can get people who, I mean, every journalist seems to have a different preference for how they would like to be contacted. Um, genuinely, every communication channel possible, you'll get people in technology who will be very insistent that they will only want um, a pitch via Twitter or LinkedIn or something like that. And then you'll have someone else who's very old fashioned um, and would much prefer to be taken out for lunch and have a chat over <laughs> lunch or a coffee. <laughs> Absolutely. I love, I mean, but that's the thing is that's really easy because you go in and you just, you know, face-to-face pitching um, is where you actually recognize, you understand, you kind of get a feel for what they're interested in and what they're not. And you can see their eyes flickering away um, or them taking notes and they just, I mean, your ability to read um, someone's body language is, I think, really important. And if you can do that, um, well, the best way to do that is face to face. And I don't think Zoom or anything like that is a substitute for that. I think when you're in the room with someone, it's so much more relaxed and you can just you can understand and recognize, you know, the things that will excite them or just they're finding really dreary i but at the same time i've come away from meetings where i just think oh god they weren't interested in anything and then they come back to you and go can you send me x y and z and you go right oh my god you just really passive <laughs> face you know it's re- you know that kind of deadpan doesn't it's seem like to be engaged tape, <laughs> yeah absolutely but but that's the thing it's just i mean you know the at the heart of publicity really is is the relationship and getting to know that person and building that trust with them. Because, I mean, I, I always say there are dark arts and there are lots of publicists out there who are brilliant at what they do, um, but they can be quite pushy. They can be, you know, a little bit 
manipulative. They can, you know, they might be quite sort of senior and have a lot of, you know, authority or a lot of sway. And they, they'll be a little bit kind of, well, I'll give you an interview with X, Y and Z if you do a bit of coverage on this. And, then, you know, it depends. And there aren't that many of them around that would do that, but they can be pushy. And I've, say, I've heard from people where they say, well, you know, um, you're not like whoever, um, you know, you'll not bully me into um, reviewing something. And I feel like, well, no, and that should never be the case. And most critics, you know, will absolutely, you know, be incredibly resistant to any push to, to, to cover something or to do something. They will pay attention to someone that they trust and who tells them that this is a good book um and i think that can be a as a you know um working for myself i'm working with a whole range of different publishers from tiny um independent presses to huge <laughs> multinational yeah exactly but you know but the difference you know the, there's very little difference if you you know if i call up my you know a contact and say look this is a really good book yeah you haven't heard of the author before and you might not have read any of the publishers other books but honestly you'll really like this this is right up your street um and there might be another book published by someone huge and you just will have the same conversation with them but there are ways that you kind of communicate what the good books are the books that they you know that they will be interested in um, and it's, you know, it's horses for courses as well. I mean, I'm not going to pitch something hugely commercial to um, a reviewer who I know just won't enjoy it. I mean, I'll just say, look, it's good. I'm not sure it's your thing. I do think it's very commercial. Um, it's worth being aware of. Um, mm. But, you know, but it's probably not your audience's taste either. So, I mean, something like you know, the Telegraph or the Guardian or something like that. There's a certain amount of, you know, th there may be a little bit of literary snobbery there or that there's mm -hmm. a particular taste that they, you know, their literary editor will want to kind of, you know, they'll want to push a, a particular style of writing to their audience because they understand that actually they're not going to be particularly interested in something they perceive as being a bit too, down market or lowbrow or whatever so you know and, and that's absolutely fine I remember you know going to a course um a media training course where it was obviously someone who didn't specialize in um in publishing and sort of fiction and whatever and they, this guy was you know training all of us and he was going oh you must you know what it's very easy to look at something like the sun and just be very dismissive but the sun has you know six million people read it every day and you know whatever it was back then um versus the guardian which is you know however you know hundred thousand um and because just because you know as professionals we're more likely to read the guardian it's very easy to dismiss the sun and i completely agree but if you're mm. pitching um, a serious history book or you know um, a literary you know a literary novel then you know of those six million people that read the sun what percentage of them 
you know, is really going to engage in that particular title. You know, you can look at an audience and go, right, that's vast. Um, but you might actually have the same number of people in a much more contained, smaller, not niche, but it's um, the Guardian maybe 60% of them will want to read that book and it'll work out the same sort of numbers or even actually much, much higher. Um, so it's just, it is about understanding the vehicle as much as and mm. the audience um, as anything else. You know, it's, you know, what is it? Um, the, um, the medium is the method. Oh, no, I'm trying to remember that famous <laughs> quote. Oh, what is it? Um, the, well, I think the medium is yeah, the message it, is one of them, but... Um... I was going to ask, actually, um, is it does it surprise you still that the impact of traditional media, by which I mean mainly the newspapers and their reviews, have such an impact on the buying habits of the bookstores and indeed readers? Because, you know, in almost every other regard, they're getting overtaken by digital and other broadcast platforms. I think, it, again, it comes down to authority. So that paid for piece of you know um that paid for feature wouldn't have the same authority as um someone that they perceive as an independent um as an independent voice and i think in some ways it's the same with digital versus traditional media um for bloggers depending on the audience i think bloggers have much more influence with a much younger audience but book buyers tend to be older um, and traditional media is, you know, has more authority with that readership. So it's not surprising at all. I think it will change. Um, but I think there's so many, there's so many bloggers and of varying sort of, you know, degrees of expertise or abilities or, you know, some are brilliant and genuinely brilliant and have gone on to write for national newspapers so i know lots yeah. of people i mean i know a few who have actually who have started you know a few bloggers that have started off um you know writing very popular blogs and passionate about crime fiction because that's my area of expertise or speciality whether i'm an expert or not i don't know but um yeah but i think you know you see people who start off um blogging because they love the um the genre and then they start to write their book and I've a few um friends have started off as bloggers and are now published authors and and doing pretty well um I think I've I've also seen people who have maybe you know 30 40 followers um and are really in it to kind of get free books um and they like to talk about the free books but and that's lovely. I mean, you know, that is word of mouth, um, you know, publicity as well. And and there is a very important place for that as well. I mean, I'm talking the small numbers. I personally think bloggers do an incredible job. And there is, you get the kind of grassroots response to a book. And if you can get, you know, people talking and a, a buzz starting about a title months and months before the book is actually published. And, and very famously, there was a brilliant campaign from Transworld for um, Girl on the Train. And yes. the, 
Um, and I remember it all happening. I mean, it, they, they launched it um, at, they actually launched it before Harrogate. And that was what was interesting. They had already sent um, material to lots of bloggers. It was the bloggers that they started off with and a few influencers, as they're called. Um, <laughs> and people were talking about it because it was just, you know, the addictive read is really interesting. And, and there were lots of recommendations. And so, and the bloggers felt very special because they were brought in at the very start. And so they went out and they were the real advocates at the very start. Um, before the trade was even, you know, spoken to about it, or there were very basic kind of, you know, messages going out to trade. And and then it just built from there. They spent, they must have spent an absolute fortune on proofs. There were, <laughs> I mean, there were probably about a thousand of them sent out to various people. And they wow. were everywhere and they launched more proofs. They had the big proof drop at Harrogate. Um, and so members of the public were just given the books. And so there was, a, you know, up until that point, a lot of publishers felt like, well, you don't give proofs willy nilly. You know, you want people to buy them at the end of the day. But they yeah. understood that if you want to make it a word of mouth success, a runaway word of mouth success, then you get people talking about it and recommending and you know a thousand copies that's nothing if you think that you're going to sell half a million or a million copies and so and that was that there kind of, yeah it did it did oh absolutely I mean it was huge I mean and but it did sell it must have sold a million copies um but it was down to just having the confidence to go out and go this is the book and the other thing that they did was um they sat down as a team um, back in Transworld and they all read, you know, I think about six books um, that were coming out in the next couple of years and um, a whole range of titles from debuts to more established writers. And now Paula Hawkins had already written a couple of books. Um, so she wasn't new. I think she was kind of new to crime fiction, but she'd written in another genre, I seem to recall. Um, but they all kind of, you know, there was a group of them sat down and they had, you know, an away day. They, they talked about it all. They, you know, they talked about sort of the addictive quality of it. But they, you know, they focused on two books that year. And Paula Hawkins was one of them. And I think, what was the other one? Was it The Widow or something like that? Um, mm -hmm. And But they, they basically, that was their strategy was to, you know get the entire company behind these books um spend the money on them you know just do a huge campaign focus on the paula hawkins as their kind of you know the, the big title of the year but they wanted to do a number on this other title as well and they they achieved it with both the paula hawkins was obviously huge um and then the second title did extremely well um, and that's the thing you kind of there's something there's something really special about working part of the team and you know you know getting your company excited about a particular project um and although I mean that's you know one of my favorite things even though I work you know sort of for myself I don't I work with a team of people who are putting something together a campaign together you know, and that, that covers all sorts of different aspects. That's everything from sales and marketing to production to whatever. And, you know, 
having conversations about that um, and, you know, just kind of absorbing the excitement and the anticipation of, of a book's publication is, is brilliant. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. And the author is at the heart of that. And, and that's, you know, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed when I moved from academic uh, publishing to trade publishing there was less of a focus on the author it was much more about the topic um but i think one when you move to um trade publishing um you understand that actually the the kind of the creative impetus is is really coming you know the the author is at the heart of that that's where the creativity lies and you know if this book doesn't take off then the next book might or if this book takes off, then you have to think about the next five or whatever, or however many you have in that series, or however long you want that author to keep with you. And so that the author is the, absolutely the you know one hundred percent the heart of that. I think with academic, it's just like, well, you're writing a book on this particular subject, and once that book is finished, then we're unlikely to come back to you unless we need a new edition of it in a few years time. So it's just, it's a very, very different experience and you have a very different relationship in both things. And, you know, I think as a publicist, um, for an author, they tend to work with their editors and the publicists most closely um, Mm -hmm. because, yeah, and that's where the, the relationships lie. And, you know, so, yeah, I think, publishing is so much so much more about relationships than it is probably about anything else you know the author and publicist or author and editor relationship is crucial you know and agent as well I mean I'm always I'm a big fan of a a very good agent you know they they can you know and not every author has them and, and not every author needs them but I think they perform a very good role you can get agents who don't understand maybe they're quite young to it and they can they think they're there to kind of boss everyone around and to make demands and stuff but the -hmm. most experienced agents and the best agents that I know um, are the people who understand that they are there as a kind of as a bridge between the two parties they're there to represent the public or the the author on occasion and they're there to represent the publisher so you know if if there's a problem on either side then they're the mediators they can you know they can explain and they're kind of they stand slightly apart from both so and I've seen situations where you kind of get someone an author who they might not even be difficult but they might just not understand a situation or the challenges of a particular you know um, aspect of publishing and the agent you sit down with the agent and you go can you go and have a conversation because they don't quite get that at this point you know we won't have x y and z or you know this is more difficult or they they just need to be patient and you know or they haven't delivered that's the one the other thing (laughs) you're kind of harassing um an author to deliver the piece of work that they they promised you weeks and weeks ago that they were going to give you and they don't you know they're just disappearing off the time and you have to just ring up the agent and go i can't find the author they've gone they've gone walkabout or whatever and they'll they might know the reason why the author 
you know has something else going on in their life and they you know, that's what i mean it's kind of they're that sort of you know the that kind of neutral sympathetic person who um can you know guide the everyone along that particular route if they're very good i mean the the best of them are and they can be charmingly challenging as well and you know publishers also need to be challenged absolutely without doubt i mean you know i've seen it umpteen times brilliant um authors are slightly let down um by their publisher who just has gotten a bit lazy and then you get an agent coming in going come on you know seriously get yourself together you need to kind of think about this but you more and you know so i think all of those things relationships in in publishing they're they're at absolute heart of it all you know and the communication is you know i mean at the end of the day we are in the communications industry Absolutely. um yeah. yeah so i do spend an awful lot of my time replying to emails that's how it feels <laughs> Yeah, no, and it's, it's a, I'm glad you do it. Um, it's, it's vital. I, I was in terms of that relationship with the authors. I mean, you know, authors, as we've discovered, going to festivals this year uh, are, are a mixed bag. Some are mm. absolute stars on the stage and mm-hmm. extroverts and, and 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 live for it. And others, it must be torture for them to get up on stage yeah. and talk about their books, uh, or to be mingling amongst their uh, peers or their fans. And um, how do you help people adjust to the the public eye? I think, um, as you say, there are lots of, you know, different strengths and weaknesses. And, and some authors love the attention and just love the buzz of being around readers and on stage and you know they really get off on that and they're, they're performers as much as anything else um for other people it's just the, their idea of hell and I've worked with both and and you just have to you know not everyone is going to feel comfortable doing an event um and I mean you know could have a proper panic attack at the idea of doing it and so you kind of I personally feel that it's not necessarily in their interests if you force someone into doing something that is just awful for them at the same time there will be people who if you challenge them and you support them in the right way and you help them and prep them then the first time they do it it's difficult the next time they do it it's a bit easier and then they get to the point where they actually are quite comfortable with it. Sometimes, sometimes they're never going to enjoy it, but they understand that it's part of the process and that just getting involved. But I tend to, I mean, in fact, I, I will always um, have a chat and, you know, and I think this is one of the issues with lockdown is um, you feel much further away from people, but I tend to like to just go out meet the author have a chat over a coffee or lunch or something or just spend some time with them and get to know what how good they will be and something like that and Mm. um if it's someone really shy um and they just you know they confess that they're going to struggle with it and they they you know 
um, I'll do media training with them and I or even just give them some hints and tips on doing events. I'll always go to the events um, or, you know, if it's on Zoom or whatever, just view it um, just to see how good they are or, um, you know, or whether they need to work on sort of different aspects. And some people um, are brilliant, but they're so scared that they're going to dominate the conversation that they <laughs> step back. And I've, I've had authors like that as well. And you just go, there's a happy medium. Um, and then you end up, you know, like an editor, you're there to kind of to say, you know, you're brilliant at this. Um, this could be worked on, um, but you handle this really brilliantly. And so you kind of you're guiding them as well. And, and, you know, and I do think that the editorial process is like that. You know, you know that there's talent there. Sometimes you just have to maybe kind of, you know, critique it a little bit to finesse, you know, how well they you know how well they present themselves either on page or on stage um like how i did that there uh, but yeah. you know i think it's on page and on stage um but i do think yeah I, I think it's really important to just to go through you know all of those things and try and if it's an interview go through ask them what's the their biggest what question would they absolutely hate to be asked and find out why and then give them a way of actually either moving it on or as long as they're not absolutely floored if it comes up you know give them an answer think about you know what their answer would be because if you're going into an interview and you are terrified that you're going to be asked this one question you're going to it's going to upset you. It's going to, you know, you're going to be anticipating the whole way through and feel nervous. If you've covered off every area that you're uncomfortable talking about, um, if you don't, have, you know, if you've got your answers worked out and you know what you're going to say, then you're a lot more relaxed. And I think that's the, the key to any kind of performance, whether it's, you know, broadcast, whether you're being interviewed for print um, or whether you're on the stage at a, an event, you know, just face your darkest fears, your deepest fears, prep for it. I mean, you know, I, I think preparation is, you know, is key to a good performance anywhere. Um, go through all of the questions, go through um, areas that you would like to talk about. Um, but also things, I mean, people don't genuinely don't even think about the most basic question which is tell me about your book and you need <laughs> to be able to summarize that in yes. two sentences and so that's the first thing that I'll say to someone is go tell me about your book in two lines and they go what and then they spend the next 10 minutes telling me about the book and I just go back and go well okay so can you summarize that for me you know because you're not going to have the healthy audience's attention for that length of time and your interview will be over. And what you want to do is not just talk about, you know, that bit of the plot because you've just gone on in some long meandering thing. What you want to do is summarize the plot and then communicate why the audience should read the book. Um, and so, you know, it's little tips like that is just go, you know, mm. do that write it down 
think about it, go back and write it again, you know, tell someone else it. have your whole list of questions. We can go through questions, get someone else to ask them as well. Um, but honestly, the number of times where I've just, you know, I've worked with someone who just isn't comfortable doing it and you just talk them through it and you go through yeah. ideas and you go through lots of tips. And by the end of it, you know, um, they get a, a lot, lot better. You know, I, I worked with someone who was just who wrote a brilliant, brilliant book. Um, he was very shy, very uncomfortable um, doing interviews of any sort. And we ended up having to do an awful lot. Um, and by the end of it, and we had a launch party as well. And he hated public speaking. And but he gave a speech at his launch party and all his friends were floored because they'd never heard him stand up in front of a crowd and actually wow. speak. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. And so they were just, and he said, and thank you, you know, to my publicist who's helped me actually get, get oh, to the oh, point where I can sweet. speak to you all. Oh, oh God, that's, sounds actually, like a that's one of the nice climax. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. I, I, I was going to, um, going to say, I mean, one of the things that, that, authors always feel is um i mean they're all guilty of it and we're all guilty in publishing as well comparisonitis uh and also mm. you know this fake feeling imposter syndrome imposter yeah. syndrome that was the phrase yeah. i was looking for i was grasping for um and you know it must be very difficult for we i mean we recently took one of our authors first time author to to bloody scotland and um was on stage uh, for, for the first time probably talking about the book yeah and previously mm -hmm. done his radio scotland interview and... i mean the disadvantage is we don't have a publicist a dedicated no. publicist so we have we to do a, that role he did a great job <laughs> yeah. and i know that it was absolute torture for him and then yeah. you know uh someone else on the panel might be just the most brilliant raconteur and just take over yeah. and it must be yeah. galling oh i mean i think when you have very dominant people on a panel that's it's that's I think it's it's one of the hardest things to actually manage um, because even if you're relatively comfortable and confident if you've got someone who's just hogging you know the the limelight or the you know um or all of the attention that and it, it's difficult for them to move on and that's why you really do need a very good moderator or you mm. know a panel host um and some people are great at it and but I oh god years ago I sat um um in a panel not on it but watching it um where it was actually one of my authors was on it and he was being he was there with about three other people and the moderator just sat and had a conversation with him the entire way I mean he was you know, by far the most interesting of the people on the panel but I just, it was embarrassing because the other three people just didn't get a word in. I mean, they no. just had this, you know, conversation between the two of them. And you just think, well, if you're not talking about that particular topic. You're talking about that particular author. And that's, you know, and their, their own perspective on that topic. And even though he's interesting, he's my author and I like him very much. It just, it becomes embarrassing for the audience because they, they think, well, you know, it's favoritism. So, you know, I do yes. think that that's that that is the big challenge for you know a festival organizer, and I wear that hat. Um, I was as going well. to say that's what I was going to go on to next. So <laughs> you can help me here because I've been trying to pronounce it. Is it New Ireland? New Ireland. Is that how you... New Ireland. Yes. Yeah. New Ireland. 
yes. Um, or some people have called it No Ireland, as I like to point out. <laughs> no that Ireland. would be a very different festival. But yes, be, it's No it? Ireland. <laughs> yeah, No Ireland. Um, yes, yeah, so that would be one part of the sectarian divide uh, only. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, or it would be, let's say it would be a challenging festival in, in all sorts of different ways. But yes, it's <laughs> No Ireland. It's No Ireland. It's a... Yeah. Um, and uh, a, a crime festival held in Ireland that celebrates Irish crime fiction, but within a kind of broader context. So we don't want to make it an Irish crime fiction festival, but it's more about, you know, about how the world has influenced um, crime writing within North and South of the border. We tend to focus a bit more on Northern Ireland, but we try and you know bring as many um writers from you know um south of the border the rubber public or whatever to um to belfast and so because you know obviously as the island of ireland you just you have as many influences you know from within the island as you do have as you have from you know sort of the uk or europe or america america mm. is, is hugely influential on crime fiction within Ireland, but you know, um, but it is changing quite a lot as well. And there's quite dark, uh, a, kind of a, a dark European feel to a lot of um, uh, Northern Irish crime fiction, anyway. So yes, yeah, mm-hmm. so I I I um, set that up five years ago um, with some friends, um, and we launched it the following year, um, and yeah, it's been kind of going. It, you know basically it was supposed to happen the last one was supposed to happen March uh last year and with mm. COVID uh, we went into lockdown the week that the festival uh, was due oh. to happen but I'd already cancelled it um because you know the way things were, were going it was just you could see the writing was on the wall and yeah. I just thought it's just I don't want to put people's health at risk so we had a chat and everyone collectively there's a, a team of us um work on it together and we all kind of were just like no no it's not going to happen um I mean we didn't think you know we thought that this could be six months and we'll do something in November we'll just have the same form you know same program just move it later in the year and then of course it was just <laughs> like no maybe not so yeah so it's just until things are on a firmer footing I think we'll just you know probably do something quite small um because at least you can put it together quickly yes and you're not dependent on there's not the kind of huge um machine that has to go into putting on a week weekend festival where you're booking accommodation you know travel um the expenses are much greater and you're having to, you know, bring maybe 40 authors um, into Belfast and, you know, all of their accommodation and their, you know, the travel, etc. Um, and that the logistics of doing all of that, you know, you, you are working a year in advance and all of that. So there's no way that we could turn something like that around, um, say, in spring, hopefully, if we manage to do something. Uh, I think it'd be a smaller thing. It'll be much more reactive and um, and just like maybe just a, a kind of New Ireland themed evening where you've got two or three events or maybe like a um, a Saturday or something like that. And, yeah. Uh, but at the moment, it's just like we 
kind of have to wait and see. Um, feels like the world is still a little bit on hold uh, until you know things pan out a bit more and people it are more comfortable. Fluctuating, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and people are confident. I mean, that's the thing. You know, I mean, we can't underestimate um, how much this has really kind of shaken a lot of people and their confidence in going out into public. You know. Um, and that's every age group, you know, that's not just mm-hmm. people in their 70s and 80s. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who are still a little bit nervous and uh, and that will come as, you know, as COVID rates, you know, sort of just hopefully fall to, the, you know, the lowest level, you know, since the very start of the pandemic. And, you know, we can get on with life. But uh, well, fingers yeah. crossed. And we, we yeah, I know. At some point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was just thinking that excuse mm. to travel to Northern Ireland. No, we're finding Yay. this place for excuses fantastic. Uh, it's fun. You've been I mean, working I'm... with us on one of our books. Um, yes. Which we're, we're extremely grateful. And uh, it's The Genesis Inquiry by mm-hmm. Ollie Jarvis. And uh, we're very excited about it. It's coming out. It's fantastic. A week on Tuesday. A week on Tuesday. A week on Tuesday. Yeah, <laughs> should be etched on my soul, and it isn't quite. No, um, he's not well, so that's a good excuse. Yeah, I keep forgetting these things. Um, but it, it it's been our, our first um, liaison and 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 um, you know working relationship with someone from with your skill set and and background. Um, so it's been a, a a big learning opportunity for us, uh, and it, I think it's what it's you know speaking for 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 the two of us really i suppose what it really has emphasized is that there's an awful lot that you know you, as an independent publisher you can do but there's an awful lot that you're not quite equipped to do mm. and that you need yeah. to get a party expertise and experience in yeah absolutely i mean i you know i think uh, i've i've worked with as i said a, a range of um publishers and teams and you know, and you can see just the, you know, the approaches that everyone takes and, and some, like sometimes it's not down to size at all. Sometimes it's just down to the responsiveness and creativity and, um, but having, you know, it's just having a team of people come together to work on something and all of the skills that they can bring to it um, can really fire your own imagination uh, I mean and that's what I love about sort of working as part of a team it's just like you just have a conversation with someone and suddenly you go oh oh actually we could do this or have yeah. you thought about this yeah. and you go and, I, you know, I love and then, conversations too I know it's fantastic and I remember the first time we you know we were talking like we had a chat and kind of and mm-hmm. what it was about two hours later we were kind of all going god that was really invigorating I really enjoyed that I mean, but it wasn't, I mean, it was part of it was about, you know, Ollie and the book and we were all so excited about it. But it then sort of, you know, you ended up having these conversations about all sorts of other things. And yet, again, Bantins. it's about the relationship. I remember yeah. books. <laughs> and my inevitable conversation about the BBC. Oh, yeah, that's right. Sailing, uh, yes, sailing ships yeah. and things. <laughs> I know exactly ships. Yes, ships in Salford. Um, but but that's the thing. It's just that I, that's what a team can bring to it and I think you know the challenge the challenge of working as either a small team or as an individual is that you don't have the same opportunities to kind of spark ideas um, with other people and I think that's you know um, 
that's what I'm conscious of is that, you know, the things that I enjoy most um, working for myself and working for with other people is just like the opportunity to just sit and talk and just kind of go, mm. ooh, what about this? And what about, you know, yeah. or just have a random conversation about something completely different, <laughs> often a tangent, but somehow it sparks something else. And you come back and you go, I've just had a thought. And then and then someone reins you in because I have a terrible tendency to go, yeah, let's do this. Um, I know somebody then... just like that. <laughs> and yeah, then I'm very goes, much, uh, you know, yeah, getting my energy from simple. talking. But do you, do you know what <laughs> yeah. we do? What we have our best ideas when we're driving on a motorway together. Mm. And I'll be just coming. Oh, I've got another one, and I've got another one, and I've got another one. When's I? You know, get get this down. We you know. could do this, and we could do that. <laughs> yeah. By the time we get there, we've conquered the world. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, my poor husband. I just go in and just go. Can I have five minutes? And he works in a completely different industry, <laughs> and he's like, "On <laughs> yes." And I go, I "Look, I just need to pitch to you. I just need to talk through this idea." Um, and and so he'll kind of go, right, okay. And then as I'm talking about it, I'm just kind of going, you know, the, suddenly the, the idea is kind of taking shape and you, you see the bits that aren't going to work and the bits that are. And um, But also just kind of it helps you hone your pitch as well because, mm. you know, I can read his expression and go, God, he's finding this really, really dull. And I go, <laughs> right, and this, and, he, and then you kind of, you know, you'll see a little bit more engagement and stuff. And so, but I need that. I mean, I need that sort of, I can't do it against a brick wall and think that I'm going to come, come up with some brilliant idea. I might come up with a good idea and then just have to go off and talk to someone else. But you take your ideas from so many different things, from people, from, you know, from all sorts of different media, from arts, from, you know, it's just, it's a constant thing. I, you know, I think mm. I get one of the, the conversations or one of, yeah, one of the things we were talking about when we had that first conversation was about, you know, um, work. I, I trained in, um, I did my degree in art and design and in combined studies and the whole philosophy behind combined studies was that we teach you lots and lots of different skills at you know, it might be a fairly shallow level to begin with, but, you know, you combine all of those different things to make you into something that's, you know, slightly different from everyone else. You're mm. taking your, you know, your creative sparks from different aspects and you then, you know, you're creating something very different and unique and very specific to you and those skills that you've learned or the you know the inspirations that are you're taking from different areas and so my like my background is very varied you know um but I do think it helps me to be more creative but also quite practical in in how I approach something because I've seen lots of publicists you know do the most amazing campaigns and you well rather they generate a huge amount of coverage perhaps um yeah. But it's not necessarily directed to the right audience and they're not right, grounded not in. Yeah. And they don't they haven't got the positioning right. Um, and they're getting loads and loads of coverage, but it, maybe it's at the wrong time or it's in the wrong, you know, in the wrong newspaper or, yeah. you know, and people are scoffing rather than actually celebrating 
Um, mm. And it's just, you know, and you kind of go, but you have to understand, you know, it's the medium is the message. That's what it was. That's the famous line. Mm-hmm. And that's so important. And it, about understanding your audience um, and how you, what the correct channel is and what the message is within that channel. And so those are all aspects of, you know, I think they're very important aspects of, of publicity um, that is quite often forgotten about. Um, you know, you can get carried away by sort of generating lots of coverage, but I think unless you're doing the right thing, then, you know, I'd much prefer to, you know, to do a very select channel where you know that you're actually reaching your audience if it's a very niche type of book, there's no point in going down the, you know, I've got a double page spread in the sun um, when all you need is, you know, the 14 times to do a small column. And, you know, and you know that every single reader of that, you know, publication is going to go out and buy that book or 90 percent of them. Yeah, so. yeah that's yeah. true. Quality rolling quantity. I think that's, that's very true. And um, one of the reasons we do this podcast is because it gives us an opportunity to have conversations like this with fantastic creative people which has been thank you angela right i think at this stage we have we've taken a lot of your time it is time i'm going to give it the big drum well i haven't got a drum roll thing here but it has to be done <laughs> it is time for rebecca's random question as we record this it's coming up to tea time so my random uh-huh. question is about food do you have Ooh. a signature dish that you're really good at making and everybody wants to eat? And if so, what is it? Mm. Well, I would say I I used to have a sig- two signature cakes. Actually, I used to, I used to bake a lot until I met my husband, and he then ate all of the cake. Um, and so <laughs> he, he then forbid me to to bake anymore. Um, but I used to when I worked in the office, I would always um, bake cakes and they, two cakes that I would make. Am I allowed to, or am I might have to choose one okay. over the other? No, you're Sorry? allowed to. Okay. So the, the chocolate roulade was always very popular with my friends. Um, that, uh, that was very nice. Uh, but the coconut and lime cake was always mm. extremely popular with work colleagues so that was a regular one that sounds um, quite, interesting that sounds I've moist never, to I've me i never had a coconut and lime cake was it was it oh, a... it's excellent it's a delia smith classic ah yeah good old delia yeah well, you can't and go it, wrong it with is, delia, can you she's fantastic in fact when i got married um because we <laughs> we did um we decided that we were going to do it very quickly and very cheaply and so we set ourselves um, a very small budget and the challenge was to try and do it all within three months in a very you know with very little money and so I said oh, well I'll bake the, the wedding cake um, <laughs> and so um, oh no I did everything I made my wedding dress I did the flowers we made the invitations the order of service we did everything and I was in the middle of doing Ian Rankin's um, my first campaign with Ian Rankin at oh, the time. Smaller than I matter. didn't sleep. I know. That's, that's good. I didn't sleep. <laughs> I know. The thing is, the, the really funny thing was going on um, on tour with Ian um, with the immediately after um, our wedding because I couldn't take the time off. We had two days away, and I said to my husband, "Let's go to Scotland." And he went, "Okay." 
Why is that then? <laughs> you why. know why. <laughs> and I had to meet Ian with my case, with my wedding dress in my <laughs> this huge oh. case, with all sorts of things like wedding presents and everything in it. Um, and we were only going away to like two or three places um, over the course of about three days or something. And he came along with the backpack and I had this huge case. And <laughs> it was my first time touring with him. And he looked at me and he looked at the case and I went, I normally don't travel like this. And he went, OK. And I was rolling this massive case along the streets. And, oh, brilliant. and he went, yeah, yeah. He then he, he called me out and he went, yeah, someone told me that you might have gotten married. And I went, oh, well, oh, we didn't know that story when we met him. We could have said, Ooh. yeah. Oh no! Oh, I mean, yeah. Oh God, Ian is a is a dear friend. We worked together for such a long time, and I mean, he still tells that story. But do you remember the time when we went on honeymoon together? He goes, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, but um, yes. So that's my my signature dish. Um, and I made the coconut and lime cake as the top tier of our wedding cake, and it was in the shape of a castle. So Aww, I got a a, a a well because we got married we managed to get this um uh it's a 16th century tower ruined tower and it has the great hall still intact has no electricity but it's at the back of a pub and so I spoke to the owners and they kind of used it occasionally for like you know outdoor barbecues and stuff like that and I said could could we maybe just like have our sort of evening do um and they went yeah yeah do you want to use the the castle and I went yes please and so we had braziers of you know um all around the the walls of the castle but of course I had to bake a cake in the shape of a castle to go with the 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 venue Wonderful. Well, it's official. When we meet you, we would like to taste your coconut and lime cake. <laughs> your homebet mug in exchange. <laughs> Excellent. And I will bake it in the shape of a castle. Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> Angela McMahon, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. We've learned so much and I'm sure our audience have too. Thank you. It's lovely to talk to you again at length. <laughs> <laughs> the wonderful Angela McMahon. It was a really great interview. And, um, you know, it's really great when you meet somebody who spiritually is, you know, in the same wheelhouse as yourself. And Angela, if you're listening, my mouth is watering in anticipation of that cake. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So Angela has been publicising um, our next release, which is The Genesis Inquiry by Ollie Jarvis. Now, we were supposed to interview Ollie this week for this week's programme, but sadly... Your voice wasn't up to it. I, I, I couldn't get a word out. It was it was tragic. I tried everything. I was gargling. I was drinking whiskey and 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 injecting honey into everything to try and get my voice back. Just for the <laughs> intravenous <podcast. as> honey. <laughs> yeah, but it was New Zealand posh honey. Yeah, me. yeah. I went out great expense. Brought you some manuka honey. Yeah, have those 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 things that they have on alcohol like gin. You know those. Yeah, yeah. It has a security tag. That's it. Yeah. Security tag. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was the suggestion of Lewis Hastings. Thank you, uh, Lewis. It's beautiful, honey. It is. It's very, very good. It's very fine. Anyway, um, so we couldn't uh, interview. We, we tried, but uh, it just wasn't going to work. So we have instead got a brief contribution now from Ollie, who introduces the Genesis Inquiry. Hello, my name's Ollie Jarvis, and I'm the author of the Genesis Inquiry. Uh, I hope you enjoy the book. It's a mystery thriller 
on an international scale. The, the core setting is Cambridge. It's difficult to put it into a set genre. It, it is crime fiction. It is a mystery, um, but it, it really crosses over several genres. And it's all about history, looking at clues through history to answer the biggest question, which is whether or not somehow everything is linked in our past and what lessons we can learn from the past about our future and uh, how we can change maybe our future with all of the problems that we're facing now. And perhaps this is the best time to look back at our past and try and learn those lessons. And the main character in the Genesis Inquiry is um, a troubled barrister called Ella Blake, who has many, many layers and also many problems. She has conflict with her daughter that she's trying to reconnect with, but also conflicts with people and inner conflicts. And the book really is about conflict and trying to find a way through the conflicts that we all have in our lives and in the wider world. So I really hope you enjoy the book and I hope you can solve the mystery of Genesis. Ollie Jarvis, author of The Genesis Inquiry, out on the 12th of October, and uh, it's already selling well in pre-sales. Pre-sales, yeah, it's doing it's really doing, well. Doing very, very well indeed, and it's got some great pre-publicity, and of course, an absolutely stellar quote from Stephen Fry. It has, yes, lovely Stephen, who goes to Fitzbillies, doesn't he, in Cambridge? He does. Well, he's certainly spoken very fondly of them. Um, Fitzbillies is the traditional baker right in the centre of the University of Cambridge, opposite um, actually the old, I think it was the, the old Cambridge University Press Building, uh, very close to where Stephen Hawking's office used to be, and very close to where I think, if uh, I'm right, Stephen Fry went either to Peterhouse or... Uh, uh, Pembroke. I've got a feeling it's Peterhouse. I think it's Peterhouse too, which is very close to where Fitzbillies has been based. Now, Fitzbillies, we reasonably mentioned that, is that we're offering some goods from Fitzbillies as part of our bigger Genesis Inquiry competition at the moment. Yes. Which includes Cambridge Dry Gin. A Kindle Paperweight. Some ex wonderful Bone China tea um, cups with Quentin Blake caricatures of key Cambridge figures. Some very nice tea. And, of course, the Genesis Inquiry itself in paperback. And, and some biscuits. Ginger and dark chocolate, because I, I oh, they winked at me. And a year's supply of Hobeck books. Of course, on, yes. Uh, on Kindle, at least. So all of that on offer. If you subscribe to us uh, at our website, www.hobeck.net, to get our uh, regular emails and... Uh, we, and also some free content, of course. We've got Crime Bites, which is our compendium of contributions from, uh, I think, eight or nine of our authors now, uh, which this is exclusive content, totally free for your Kindle or whichever EPUB device that you have. <laughs> and uh, you just need to subscribe to our mailing yeah, list. Yeah, and you get it all, plus um, the chance to enter the lovely competition. Which has gone crazy. It really has. Um, so we uh, launched it. I was too ill to launch it last weekend, but I managed to, I think it was Sunday, I managed to launch it. And so in a week, so we're recording on Sunday, in a week we've had, um, I think, if I'm right, coming up to a 1,000 new subscribers. So that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's about 20% uh, growth. Yeah, 
because there was a big flurry immediately on Twitter, and I, I was I was very touched. Lots of people very kindly retweeted and tagged people in saying you have to have a go at this, and that really really helped us give that sort of initial boost. Lovely, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. What else have we got in the way of? Um, well, like I said before the interview, there was one other news item that I have. Mm. Now, everybody knows how much I am a big fan of Malcolm Rutherford, the footballer for Manchester United. Marcus Rashford. Yes, that's the one. That's what people call him anyway. I call him Malcolm. Oh, he's lovely. He has got a higher education level than me now. He's Dr. Mal- Malcolm Rutherford. Dr. Marcus Rashford. He's got an um, an honorary doctorate from the University of Manchester. Yeah, uh, last week. It was presented this week and Alex Ferguson was there. Uh, so Bobby Charlton couldn't make it. It's too ill. Well, I have I have a couple of did you knows that, well, you've one of them you've already told me, you, Alex Ferguson was there. But did you know Alex Ferguson has also got an honorary doctorate from the University of Manchester? I did know that, yeah. And did you know that Sir Bobby Charlton also has? Oh, so right, the triumvirate were... Yes, exactly. Uh, that's wonderful. I have one more did you know. Malcolm Rutherford is the youngest ever person to receive a honorary doctorate from the University of Manchester at the age of 23. That's brilliant. And it's for his work with child poverty. So when you do a PhD, you know, you pick a topic, like, I don't know, um, I, I, can't, I can't even think because my brain's a bit foggy, but, you, you know, you pick some, you can pick something quite obscure. And so they thought for Malcolm, we'll pick child poverty for him because that's why he's done all his work for and he's campaigned for so much. So, yay. Yeah, congratulations to him. It'd just be nice if he turned up on the pitch now. Uh, he's not played all season. <laughs> but uh, goodness knows who plays for Man United when he arrives because we've got uh, <coughs> Ronaldo, we've got Sancho, we've got Mason, Gr- we've got Magnus Greenwood. Uh, Mason Greenwood. Magnum. Magnus. Magnus. Magnum. <laughs> he's a nice holly. Uh, yes. Bernard Fernandez. Sorry, Bruno Fernandez. Bad as me. Oh. And Pogba. Oh, the lovely Pogba. Ahmad Diallo. Oh, I don't know Ahmad Diallo's. No, no, he's quite a young player. He's He's been injured recently. Oh, I don't know him. Uh, Luke Jesse, Shaw? No, 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 no. This is about specifically attacking players. And Jesse Lingard and Anthony Martial, all of them trying to get into, into the team. So uh, it's going to be a bit of a squeeze. Oh, OK. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you're stretching it, Anthony Langer as well. Okay, um, what other Hobart news have we got this week? Well, I mean, yes, yeah, so, so we, we, despite being on our, in our sick beds to some degree, we have been quite busy, you know, we, we were sort of, we're gearing up to December, you know, and, and to sort of the end of the year, and we have um, really, really excited about a book by Jenny Ensor that's coming out in December called Silenced. So we've been doing lots of the publicity for that and sort of, you know, getting some excitement, being an Angela, basically, we, as best we can. Um, but we have another book coming out in December, don't we? We do. It's a very special book. And you're contributing to it, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, this is, this is your strong arming of me, uh, isn't it? Um, but so am I. <laughs> yes. So The Dark Side of Christmas is our second Christmas compendium of short stories from our team, including you, including me, and our wonderful authors. And uh, that is where well, we're sort of calling for submissions from our team uh, for November. Yeah. The, and at the moment, we're the ones lagging behind. No, they're, they're putting us to shame. They really are because, uh, I mean, I know some of them are still working on it, on their story, and they've kept in contact with me and given me progress reports. You and I, we have an idea-ish, 
Um, I tried to start writing it yesterday, but I just my brain is still a bit too foggy. We will do it, won't we? We will, we will, we will. Yes. Yes, yes, yes <laughs> we will. Uh, but, you know, knowing me, it'll be lastminute.com. So Halloween is going to be spent writing. Right. Well, it's better than the alternative because I'm not a trick-or-treater, that's for sure. Um, I don't want to sort of end on a, on a low note, but uh, uh, I should I want to pay tribute to somebody who I didn't know really well, but our paths have crossed, who passed away this week. And that's the MP, James Brokenshire, Conservative MP, former minister. He used to be Northern Ireland Secretary. He'd been uh, a Minister of State in the Home Office as well. Um, and university recognised as one of the <laughs> truly nice guys of British politics. Now, my context with him is that we were both members of University Radio Exeter. And he'd already graduated by the time I joined the station. But if you can imagine, um, in my in the sort of, I think it was my middle of my second, no, possibly my first year at university. I'd just become a presenter on the uh, on the radio station, and we had a an FM uh, short term license. We were, in fact, the first campus radio station in the country to go to FM on one of these new licenses that were offered up by the radio authority. And I was due to do a show in the middle weekend. I'd already done one on the first weekend, and I was supposed to have a it was a Saturday lunchtime show. But on the Friday night, I went down with chronic abdominal pain and ended up in hospital. Uh, I was admitted for two or three days, in fact. Um, and so there was a crisis because who was going to present the show? James happened to be visiting that weekend, uh, you know, old friends and university chums and all that sort of stuff, and stepped into the breach at the very last minute. So there was I lying in my be- in, in my hospital bed, not knowing what was going on, possibly appendicitis. Uh, in, in, I, I would just like to point out, thankfully, it wasn't quite so serious. No, it wasn't, actually. Anyway, <laughs> I won't reveal what it was. Anyway, it, yeah, a little bit confused and a great deal of pain. Uh, and he did a wonderful job presenting the show at the very last minute. Um, and then I got a note from him saying, thank you for the opportunity. Hope you feel better. And we've, uh, we shook hands. Um, some A couple of years later, we, we met up randomly and... Um, had a brief conversation about it. But anyway, James passed away with cancer this week and um, leaving his his wife and two daughters. And uh, it's affected a lot of, very deeply affected a lot of my friends from that period of my life who knew him very well. And he really was one of the giants of the station um, of that era because it became the best campus radio station in the country. And it was my generation's job to sort of keep that going. You did a very good job. I used to love you, Ari. Yeah, no, we did. We did. We were very proud. But he set the standards. He was one of the standard setters that, that took us to that level. Um, and he worked with Simon McCleave, who we've had on the programme, because he was at URE as well. No, it's funny, isn't it? All these little connections. It is, it is. But look, I mean, um, he he approached his illness with enormous strength and decency. And, um, you know, OK, I'm not going to pretend I'm supported his politics, um, but I think he was one of the few effective Tory politicians around. It was actually quite sad that he never really made it to senior, senior office. At one stage, he was being talked about as a possible Home Secretary. But, um, yeah, he was a very, very thoroughly decent man. Mm-hmm. And, um, as I say, touched a lot of people's lives, of people I'm, I, I love myself. So, um, you know, rest in peace, uh, James. And um, thank you for the small contribution you made to, you know, me at a very difficult time. Um, 
was you know bewildering the way I went fell ill like well, it's that. horrible isn't it because if you if you don't know what's wrong with you and people looking after you mm. don't know what's wrong with you yeah it's yeah very scary for you yeah it was it was but uh, it was reassuring and actually a little bit galling because he was so good as well <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have been nearly as good um but anyway uh, so uh, my thoughts to, with his family and and indeed all my friends who have been deeply touched by this this tragic um passing of James Brokenshaw um so uh it remains for us to sort of well I think this week's aim is to get what is there yeah. one, one more thing no 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 I was that? just going to say our big aim is and I'm sure people listening will be very pleased to hear this we're going to start looking at the submission pile ah yes that's true that's true we are yeah it's a it's a monster um but we're going to start cracking on with that as this podcast goes live um I think we're setting ourselves the challenge of looking at three submissions a day it's still going to take us the best part of a month to get through them. Yeah, so I mean, it might be it might be between three and five a day because, um, just by the nature of of the process of looking at submissions, some will take longer than others. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I'd, I'd say that yeah, yeah. It's it's going to be a busy week, and 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 obviously, as our health improves, we've got to rediscover the sort of energy and mojo that has been you know stripped away from us because. Okay, I'm feeling a lot better than I did last week. But last week, I was like you. I mean, just absolutely, you know, nights were a nightmare. Um, you know, I could barely breathe. I get a, you know, I remember shopping at Waitrose and having to take a seat. Well, I think I am now at the stage of you last week where I wake up and I, I feel reasonably okay in the first two or three hours of the day. Yesterday, I cleaned the kitchen like a maniac. And then I hit lunchtime and suddenly... I just I just can't deal with anything anymore, and then and I, I'd struggle on a little bit to some extent, but you know this is a sort of virus that, that affects so many parts of your body, whatever it is we've got this sort of super cold or whatever, that it, it you know I'm not, I'm just not used to having to fight the fatigue as well as the cough and the voice, and the intercostal muscles which oh my intercostal muscles last night oh they were agony yeah, <laughs> well we are on the mend. Um, and your good wishes have certainly helped us through. Oh, absolutely. People have been lovely. So, uh, you know, we hope for a, a bounteous week this week, a creative and happy week, and we wish you the same. Thank you for joining us on the Hobcast. Don't forget to uh, perhaps subscribe to the podcast wherever you get it from. Uh, the more, the merrier. And don't forget to check out our website, www.hobeck.net. And don't forget that this week is the launch week of the Genesis Inquiry. A wonderful book by Ollie Jarvis. So uh, check that out as well. It really is superb. And that's it for us for this week. So uh, it remains for me to say thank you for joining us. I'm Adrian Hobart. And it remains for me to croak. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rebecca Collins. And have a happy and creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit